Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. All right, let's jump in to some of these questions for this particular episode. Uh, first question was from Ken Lesnansky. And Ken wanted to know about how do you increase your pace or cadence when running? So for those of you who are not aware, cadence is essentially just the number of foot strikes per minute that you produce when you're running. Uh, There's kind of a little bit of a catch-all number that a lot of runners will sometimes target, and that's 180 steps per minute. So they're looking to kind of have that repetition when they're out there running and and that's supposedly supposed to kind of put you in like the right amount of the right amount of steps per minute so that you're not overstriding understriding you know you're in that kind of sweet spot in actual you're probably going to either be under it or over it and your pace is going to influence that so most people will have a range where their slowest runs will be a certain cadence and their faster runs will be a certain cadence and sometimes this can range by a fair bit maybe 20 steps per minute uh in some cases it also can range quite a bit as to where your cadence is actually at. They've had some studies done on elite marathoners, I believe, where they looked at cadence and it was pretty widespread. They had some that were a fair bit above 180 and some that were a fair bit under. Uh, Really, I think once you start getting down into like the 160s, certainly the low 160s, you're starting to kind of get a low enough cadence where I would start to worry that you're maybe overstriding. So if you're kind of getting down below that, that may be a sign that you should take a peek at what you can do to maybe improve that. And I'm going to talk about a few ways to address it and possibly some more proactive ways in the sense where you won't find yourself in a situation where changing your cadence too drastically too soon will find you on the injury table either. So When it comes to running form and technique, I like to focus on kind of four things to put you in a position to be able to address your cadence. I like to focus kind of from the top down. So it's kind of easy to follow. The first one is a forward lean. So when you're running, you want like a slight forward lean, because when you think about it, you're trying to go forward. You're not trying to create a situation where you're fighting that forward momentum and a slight forward lean is going to best put you in that position. One way I like to kind of properly prepare myself to better engage a forward lead when I'm running naturally is I'll practice a few things before I start where I'll stand as straight and upright as I can and almost kind of puff out my chest almost to the point where it feels artificially puffed out. And once I'm in that position, standing nice and tall and proud, I'll actually start kind of slowly rocking back and forth just a little bit. Not so I feel uncomfortable, unstable, just a slow rock back and forth. Once I get kind of comfortable doing that, I'll eventually let myself rock forward to the point where I feel like I'm losing my balance. Once you get that sensation where you feel like you're going to lose your balance, that's your cue to kind of lift your foot up and let yourself fall forward and catch yourself. If you repeat that, that fall forward, catch yourself, fall forward, catch yourself, that's going to likely put you in the position to have that forward lean we're looking for and better improve your mechanics and possibly your cadence along the way. Next spot is your arms. So one of the interesting things I always find is if you go to like a high school track or cross country meet or a college track or cross country meet, or really any track or cross country meet for that matter, you might see a coach out there, especially kind of in the finish line shoot where they'll be screaming at the runners, like swing your arms, swing your arms. 
And that kind of goes back to this like idea that your arms move as fast as your legs when running. So if you focus on a really strong, fast arm swing, your legs will kind of come along for the ride. You're probably more likely to keep your form in check when doing that. And I like to say that that's kind of half right. You do want your arms to swing to a degree, but really what you should be thinking about is keeping them nice and high and tight. Think like a little, like a chicken wing almost. Uh, and you, but you want to pop your elbows back and then just let your arm fall forward. When you think about it, you're trying to move forward. So just like the forward lean, if you push your elbow back, that's pushing your body forward. Now, if you swing your arm forward though, that's actually pushing your body in the opposite direction you're trying to go. So if you swing your arm back and then swing it forward, you're giving yourself that forward lean, that forward push, but then you're giving yourself a backwards push. So by popping back and letting your arm just relax and fall forward and then popping back, that's gonna better produce that consistent forward lean and have you not fighting the direction you're trying to go. Uh, next is where your foot is landing in relation to your knee. And this is one that I think is a little bit more important in terms of kind of making sure the impact forces end up where your body is mechanically designed to absorb them. So if you have like a camera or a video or something like that, where you can get of yourself running sideways past it, you can kind of see where your foot will hit the ground in relation to your knee. You want your foot to bear the weight, whether you kind of strike closer to the back half of your foot, the middle of your foot or the front of your foot, you want it to be coming down under your bent knee. So as your knee collapses and bends in, you want that foot, that spot where you're bearing that weight to be directly underneath it. If you do that, that's going to distribute the impact forces in the way your body was made to do it. And it's not going to unevenly push them into places like knees, hips, lower back areas where runners typically have problems when their mechanics are off and their impact forces are not being distributed properly. So watching for that to make sure that your foot isn't kind of coming out in front of that bent knee is really the key we're looking for there. You'll note if you see it on the video, it looks like almost like a little check mark with your foot, your toes are pointed up, your heels down, leg is nice and straight all out in front of that bent knee, or it's a straight knee in this case. And that's what you want to try to avoid that check mark stance. So if you see that on the video, that can be a sign that you're overstriding. A lot of times that comes along with a lower cadence, because when you think about it, if you're trying to take bigger steps over striding, you're probably going to cover more ground with each step, but you're going to take less steps per minute. So sometimes when I see people over striding, we'll start seeing their cadence kind of drift down into like the 150 mark. So yeah, they're covering maybe a little more ground per stride, but they're taking less steps per minute and they're doing it inefficiently in the sense that they are going to be kind of breaking when they run and slamming those impact forces into areas that aren't really designed to take those on properly. So watching for that foot landing on a bent knee, if you notice you're overstriding, kind of working on getting it kind of back there under bent knee is, is a good step to kind of focus on. The next one is cadence specifically. So one way I, I like to calculate cadence that's a little quicker than maybe counting every step for a minute and losing track along the way is to pick one leg. I'll pick like my right leg and I'll count how many times that foot hits the ground in 20 seconds. Okay. So 20 seconds is a third of a minute. And my right leg is half of my foot or my right foot is half of my foot strikes. So three times two is six. So I take that number and multiply by six. So let's say when I'm doing that in that 20 seconds, I count that my right foot hit the ground 30 times, 30 times six is 180. So that would mean I'm right at 180 steps per minute for that. 
Now let's say we had one where it was 25, I'd be looking at 150 steps per minute. So that might be a sign that my cadence is a little too low. I'm overstriding a bit and maybe want to speed it up. So once you have that number, then you need to decide, is it something that is in my best interest to actually change or not? So kind of like I said earlier, if you start drifting below 160, that's getting to that point where there's a good chance you're overstriding and you may want to consider increasing your cadence. So the way to do it though, is kind of the next step. Let's say you have a really low cadence, you're in like the low 150s and you're like, I definitely need to increase my cadence. If you try to go from say the low 150s up to 180 right away, that may be a pretty big mechanical shift in the way you're running. So if you've been running for quite some time in that low 150 cadence, your body has more or less kind of adapted to it to a degree. So if you change things drastically and start running with completely different form, your body might not be quite ready for the training load that you had done previously. So it's much better to kind of inch yourself forward with this versus trying to make that big jump all at once. So if you find yourself low and wanting to raise your cadence, I like to recommend increasing it by maybe five at most 10 steps per minute, get comfortable and used to that work through all the mechanical kind of shifts and changes with that. And then once you're comfortable and that becomes intuitive and you still need to increase more, keep doing that and just keep adding that and repeating that process until you get to that spot that you're looking for, for your cadence and finding yourself in that position where you have that good forward lean, that compact arms where you're popping back, falling forward, foot's landing under bent knee and your cadence is kind of in that sweet spot area. All right. Next question is if I take you as a coach, how will our interactions look like? How will you support me? What can I expect running wise and what nutrition wise? And this came in from Jorgen Eckert and uh, yeah, he's interested in kind of like my, my, my coaching uh, interaction and stuff like that. So I have a pretty wide variety of options. And the reason I have that is because I think there are people who are looking for a lot more support and then people who are just looking for some information on my philosophy that they can kind of pull from as they need or as they want. So I have things as simple as some ready-made or pre-made plans that you can get that kind of follows my specific philosophy for right now. I have 5k half marathon, marathon, 50k, 80 to hundred K and hundred mile options tiered to three different levels so that you're starting off where you're at. I'm a big advocate of starting where you're at and building from there. So when it comes to ultra marathoners, a lot of times I think it can get a little bit scary at times because you're taking on this big project, this really long distance run, and you feel like you have to be doing like a ton of work. But if you're just getting started you definitely want to be starting from where you're at and building from there. It doesn't do you any favors to do a ton of extra work because you think that's the best program. If you're not ready to absorb that training load, you'll be better off on race day doing less and meeting yourself where you're at and gradually improving. And if it's something where you have a long ways to go, but you're in a position where you can do enough to get ready for a race you can totally do that. You just want to make sure you're kind of making it sustainable. So you don't have a really short running career by trying to bite off too much than you can currently chew. So finding the right level there and following my philosophy can be helpful for some people if they just need that guide. 
other people want a little more support than that. Um, a little more things structured to their schedule. So kind of the first level of what I call my personalized plans is a structure or system where I design the training to meet your needs a little more specifically. And that includes things like your specific schedule, which days are going to be the most difficult for you to train hard, which days are going to be the most convenient for you to train hard. Like what day do you have the most availability to do a long run, things like that. So long story short, it's kind of like, I'm trying to match your least stressful days with your higher volume, more stressful running days and your more stressful days with other areas of life, whether it be family, friends, work, obligations, things like that with, uh, you know, days that are a little less stressful on the running front. And uh, I'll also be catering those specifically to the event you're preparing for under the personalized plan. So rather than just picking the distance you're doing, we'll look at the actual course itself. So if you're doing like a course that is a little more trail-based or road-based, we're going to build it to that. We're also going to personalize it specifically to your needs. So when I talked about before, kind of meeting yourself where you're at and do what I like to call micro-stressing so that you're continually progressing and sustainably building up, those personalized plans are going to kind of do that. So you'll fill out a questionnaire and I'll build your plan based on where you're at, where you want to be, your history, your current fitness, all that sort of stuff. Then with that, the baseline of those type of plans comes with a four-week check-in. So every four-week block that you would do with those, you'd send in a detailed report about how things went, any questions, concerns, any schedule changes, things like that. And then I tweak, alter, adjust uh, the next four weeks of your training to match that feedback, as well as the goals that we talked about originally. Those personalized plans that the ones that are... 16 weeks and beyond also come with a free consultation where we go through the plan structure and everything on a call before you get started, just to make sure you're getting going and and ready to go. And then we do those check-ins for those who want more assistance beyond that type of programming. They, there are options that I offer that are called add-on features. So there's two main ones and that is email collaboration and frequent adjustments And then there's consultation calls. So if someone says, I want to be able to speak with you almost on a daily or multiple times a week to make sure I'm really kind of doing everything right and has us have a second set eyes on basically everything I'm doing on the day-to-day, those email add-ons and adjustment option is something I usually recommend. If you have a lot of detailed questions and really want to focus on any type of nutritional like implementation, uh, that's where those consultations call. So sometimes the clients that want a lot of support, they'll sign up for the personalized plan, email collaboration, and a couple consult calls per month. And that would be a lot of hands-on work, but that's the way that uh, I offer um, the most interaction for, for, for clients. Uh, I also build in kind of some population level strength recommendations for runners that, that are good to do just to kind of stay, stay healthy and balanced with the strength work and things like that. Uh, so all my training plans kind of come with, with a little bit of support from that side of things too. Generally speaking, my philosophy running with running coaching, especially when we get into these longer distances is we're going to be working on things early on in the plan that are going to be least specific, but still important to your development and progress potential, uh, and move more specific as we get closer to your race. So that as we get closer to your race, 
you're going to be doing things that are very specific to the intensity, the environment, the, the things you're going to need to be really well dialed into on the race itself. So that's kind of the flow of it. Uh, let's see. Next question. Should managing sleep deprivation be part of an athletic event from Michael Lowe? And this is a good question because when you get into the world of ultra marathons, sleep deprivation is almost a reality in a lot of cases, especially when you get up into like a hundred mile races where, you know, most people, especially out on the trails are going to be running through the night to get to the finish line. And that can oftentimes be coupled with, uh, maybe not great sleep the night before. When you think of some of these events, I believe the Leadville 100 actually starts at 4 a.m. So it's like, when you think about like a, being on a starting line at 4 a.m., you're probably waking up at 2 a.m. I mean, how early can you actually get to bed that night before? So you may actually be double juggling a couple nights of sleep deprivation for, for a hundred miler. And, and then when you get into the 200 mile stuff or any of these multi-day things, it, it gets, it can get pretty wild pretty quick. So I totally understand this idea where maybe I need to practice being able to run in a sleep deprived state. So where that becomes a problem, in my opinion, is you're kind of doing a little bit of a give and take. So when you, when, when I think of like the main pillars to proper training, almost across the board, regardless of whether it's running or another sport, I think about, uh, the proper training stimulus for where you're at. So proper programming consistently proper programming, the nutrition program, that's going to work best for you to keep you fueled and recovering from the efforts that you're doing and then recovery itself which I think sleep is the biggest lever within that side of things. The recovery side, the sleep is huge. So having the right workload, training load, and then the proper recovery from it is going to be really important. And sleep is going to be where the big moves are taken there. So what I, what I want to avoid seeing in a training plan a lot of times is, is this person consistently undersleeping or, are we pairing a big training, a big training uh, load with less sleep? Because these are all things that add up to things like injury, overtraining, uh, all sorts of problems can start to occur. You can start taking future workouts off the calendar because you it took you longer to bounce back from a big session. So it's a pretty big trade-off, I think, to go the route of doing like, say, I'm going to do a training run in the middle of the night uh, just so I can practice running through the night where I can appreciate possibly doing something like that would be if, if you're beating yourself up mentally and you're just like, I'm really nervous about the overnight section. I'm really nervous about what to do here. I just need to practice it. I think there's some application there. You could maybe do it a one or two times or so during a training plan, just to kind of calm those nerves a little bit and give yourself a little bit of experience just so you know what's coming and it's not all unexpected when you get there. I wouldn't recommend that for somebody who it typically struggles to sleep. Someone who has a hard time getting enough sleep in general or is a really light sleeper, I would say this is probably not a worthwhile trade-off. Now, if you're someone who sleeps great and you get a lot of good sleep, you're really consistent with it. When you go to bed, you're out like a light and you're just stay, stay asleep. That person may be in a better position to be able to afford some some loss of sleep in exchange for the comfort of knowing what it feels like to run through the night and things like that. Uh, so that's where I would uh, kind of look at that. It's definitely a trade-off. 
uh, you need to ask yourself, is the trade-off worth it given my specific situation? And when you're dealing with a sport like ultra marathoning, where that mental component is going to be just as big as the physical component in a lot of cases, there are going to be people who may benefit from getting that experience uh, one or two times in a training block. But I would definitely avoid saying like, hey, I'm going to every one of my long runs in the build up to the race, I'm going to just not sleep one night and run instead. I think that's probably heading to the extreme in that side of things. All right. Uh, let's see. In a hundred mile race, when do you expect to notice a difference in your perceived effort? When do things start feeling real difficult? How much heart rate drift do you get? And when relative to your longest training runs, James, that's from James Robert. Okay. So I'll answer this one as best I can. There is some kind of, uh, individuality here where it's not like going to necessarily always click for everyone the same way. So first of all, I think what we want to do is step away from thinking of this idea that the perceived effort in a hundred mile race is just going to, in a linear manner, get progressively more difficult. You'll never find a hundred mile performance. Uh, I shouldn't say never, but you'll be very unlikely to find a hundred mile performance where every mile just gets slightly more difficult to the point where like mile one was the easiest mile hundred was the hardest and everyone in between kind of just fell in line. Uh, it just doesn't really work that way. You'll have like ebbs and flows where you, you might find yourself 20 miles in feeling like, Oh, the effort's a little harder right now than it felt before. And then 10 miles later, you might feel better than you did at the starting line. Uh, you could have a situation where like, at mile 70, you hit a rough patch in your previous race. So your mind is hyper-focusing on that and can drive you into kind of like expecting it to happen and therefore producing that, that sensation. So there's a lot of like things, a lot of moving parts going on here with this particular thing, but I think there are things you can do to help smooth that out as much as possible. So you don't feel like you're on a roller coaster ride all day or feel like, you know, the last 20 miles of the hundred mile was like half the day in your mind. And some of those are just accepting that it's not linear because if you find yourself uh, partway into a race and things are getting more difficult, if you start thinking it's going to get worse progressively, you're going to spin yourself into such a mental negative feedback loop that it will get more difficult and you'll likely drop out if that happens early enough or just have a really rough go of it. So recognizing that it's not linear and that if things do start feeling bad, that they will get better if you take care of yourself and properly kind of focus, then you'll get through that low and you may feel great and your perceived effort will likely feel like it comes down. Like all of a sudden now you're moving along, maybe at a faster pace, feeling like it's even easier than it did uh, four miles ago. And this is the thing that I think is oftentimes the most intriguing for ultra marathon runners is because when they get that experience, everyone they talk to has had that experience as well. And they're just, it's like this weird thing that doesn't make sense in your head. Cause how can continuing the activity that got you there in the first place actually feel better after a while? It would, you, it would, it feels like it has to progressively get worse. Uh, personally, I think a lot of times when people consistently struggle at the end of a race where it feels like things is really getting much more difficult for say the last 20, 30 miles than they do the rest of the race is because of pacing. Uh, a lot of times the ultra marathon running community, I think gets into this headspace of they have a race where the end is just infinitely more difficult than the beginning. And they 
assume that that is the reality. Like there's no way around it. It's always going to feel much more worse at the end, the beginning. Therefore I need to bank miles while my legs are fresh. And it's really, really tempting to do this. Everyone's fallen for it. It seems like if you do enough of them, you've fallen for this. I've fallen for it many times where you feel good in the beginning and you're like, okay, I'm just going to bank a few miles here while I feel good. Therefore, when I start feeling crummy at the end, I'll have some, some money in the bank, so to speak. And you can cash that in when balance it out with your slower miles. If you try to more evenly pace or sustainably pace a run or go into a hundred mile of thinking, I could actually run faster in the second half than the first half versus this mentality where it's inevitable that you're going to slow down. That's when you put yourself in a position where you could possibly actually feel better at the end. And if you pace yourself properly, then you, you, you're more likely to find yourself in that position. So I get that that's really difficult, especially for a hundred miles, because you're just not going to do a training run that is going to get anywhere near that in almost any case, unless you're just doing a ton of racing and your last hundred mile was in close proximity. But I think anytime you go into a race outside of races where there's certain elements that really impact the pace you can run, like say heat, let's say it's a race where it's really cool in the morning and blistering hot in the afternoon, and then maybe cool again in the evening. I can see some justification for moving a little quicker during those cooler periods, because there's just going to be less logistics to manage. You're not going to have to slow down to, to stay cool as much as you may would have, maybe would have to in the afternoon. And there, I think banking miles isn't as big of an issue, but you still have to be working within a reasonable range there. So you don't find yourself in rough spot during the heat of the day. Cause now you're going to be getting hit with like the fact that you went out too fast as well as the increasing temperatures. So I think you need to be mindful of that as well. Uh, other things to think about along the way with this is nutrition, caffeine, and hydration. Okay. So if you are not defending muscle glycogen, your perceived effort will likely go up. So the, I can't, I think it was Dr. Mike Nelson, when he was on the show, we talked about this a little bit where when you get to a point where your muscle glycogen is a right around 40% is when your body starts kind of increasing your perceived effort at a given pace. And that is uh, just your body's way of saying, Hey, we're starting to kind of get a little lower in this fuel source. And we want to make sure we're preserving the, the, the remainder for things that are going to be a little more important than your race day and your body's mind. Uh, then you may start seeing that. So if you're, if you're not defending glycogen enough to stay above that marker, you may feel that perceived effort kind of increase as your body fights to, to, to kind of release some of the fuel that you'd maybe want to kind of keep moving at the pace at the, the perceived effort that it felt at the beginning of it. So kind of, you know, paying attention to making sure you're getting your nutrition in, in a timely way and not falling way off on that can be big. A hydration kind of fits in the same, same realm with that. You think about it. Like if you're just, if once you hit certain points of dehydration, you know, your blood volume is going to drop and those. That's the, you know, that's, that's, what's going to be, help you be running efficiently. So if you're behind on fluids and electrolytes and things like that, your body may also increase perceived effort because it just has finite supplies to keep doing the activity. You're trying to get it to it. Now you add on top of this, everything that comes along with it, 
sleep deprivation, like we talked about in the previous question, just time on your feet, your legs are getting tired, just relative mental bandwidth wearing out. I like to talk about these hundred mile races as like there, are, this is a physical component and there's a mental component. And I think you can drain both of them. And if you find yourself in a position where you're, uh, you're fighting a lot of mental, mental demons, cause you went out too fast and you're progressively getting slower or, you're constantly thinking about how heavy your legs feel because you are underhydrated or underfueled or something like that. These things are going to all compound. So it's why I think a lot of times when ultra marathons go bad, they go really bad because it's not just, it's maybe one thing drove it, but that one thing kind of compounds into other things that also slow you down. And that becomes more exponential at that point. So hitting your defending your muscle glycogen, which is going to be different from person to person. We've talked about this on the show before, where I like to kind of put everyone in the same camp where we're all defending muscle glycogen, regardless of whether you follow a diet like mine, which is lower in carbohydrates or even lower than be a strict ketogenic diet. Or if you're a moderate high carb athlete, either way, you need to be defending muscle glycogen on the day. You know, the low carbers and keto athletes are going to have to eat a little less in order to do that. The high carbers, moderate carbers are going to maybe have to eat a little bit more in order to do that. And, you know, just kind of finding out with your long runs or getting a fat oxidation tests and things like that. So you can get an idea of what your carbs to fat ratios are at given intensities can kind of clue you in as to how much you need to eat or whether you need to manipulate diet or training in a way to improve your fat oxidation rates. These are other ways to make sure that you're kind of staying on top of these sort of things. When it comes to hydration, I think kind of a starting point for a lot of people can be trying to target about five to 700 milligrams of uh, electrolytes per liter of water consumed. And you should count the stuff you have in your nutrition, as well as any extra electrolytes you're going to add into that. But if you have that kind of that, that that ratio, you're in a position where you uh, can drink to thirst and, and, and then you can kind of gauge if you're someone who's not fitting nice and cleanly within those averages, you may need to do a little less sodium with your water, or you need to maybe do a little more depending on usually a little more is less of an issue, I think, because you just get you just drink more and then you're going to get a little more with it. But, uh, it is something that's worth paying attention to. You can get tests that will show you kind of like your, your electrolyte loss and, and fine tune that number a little bit more specifically to you versus using kind of population level stuff. But a lot of times most people aren't going to go in and do that. So I, I like to say, start out with five to 700 milligrams per liter of water consumed and drink to thirst from there. And that, that should kind of keep you in balance with uh, fluids and electrolytes and hopefully keep you from finding yourself in a position where it's just that perceived effort is getting worse and worse as the race goes on versus, you know, having a few hard spots, it's hundred miles. You're going to have spots where things are more difficult than the average. You're going to have spots that are easier than the average. And then ultimately it's going to, you're going to have an experience that is your average. Uh, but if you want it to be like a little more predictable, I think staying on top of those things, proper pacing and, uh, you know, not getting into this mindset where you need to bank a ton of miles early on is, is a good way to start with that. So thanks for that question, James. And that's it. Those are the questions for this one. Uh, I said this in the last Q and a episode and 
I'm going to get back to it and with some of these previous uh, solo episodes that I did last year. I would do a segment where I would do a, a workout challenge and I would do a uh, kind of a sample day of training and nutrition. And that just that I follow. So people who are kind of following my approach can kind of get a snapshot of what specific days look like, whether it's a recovery day, like what am I doing on recovery days? And then what am I eating on recovery days compared to say like a big training stimulus, like a long run or a short interval day and things like that. So I will start adding those uh, when I get kind of more settled here in Austin, my wife and I actually close on our house this week. So once we kind of get in there and get everything set up, I'll be able to do a little bit more uh, stuff with the podcast. So if you're interested in that, uh, just, uh, rest easy for a minute here. I'll start kind of getting those back implemented into these solo episodes sooner rather than later, but otherwise, thanks a bunch for tuning into this episode. If you enjoyed it, please consider liking, sharing, subscribing to the podcast platform that you prefer or YouTube. If you like the video version of the show, I do chop a lot of these episodes up into mini clips now too on the YouTube channel. So if you want to just hear one section of an interview or get a taste of what the episode is like, that's not a bad spot to get a little bit of a primer. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. 